<laughs> All right. I'm ready. Hi. Hi. Welcome to Piloting. I'm Renee. And I'm Melissa. And we're your hosts. Piloting is a podcast for people who refuse to live on autopilot, where we celebrate risk takers, go-getters, and anyone craving a change. Um, it's a very giggly day. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm actually in a really good mood because I'm always in a good mood when we it when it's podcast nights or podcast weeks. Um, but in particular, I'm going on PTO super Ooh. soon. And like we've said in multiple episodes, use your PTO. And I'm using it, taking my own advice. Um, are you comfortable telling us where you're going or what you're doing? Oh yeah. So um I'll say a little teaser. I'll share because this is my gold star, so I'm not going to say it yet. But anyways, there was a situation earlier this week where I got to have like a teaser sort of PTO. And then this weekend, I'm going on a girl's trip where we're staying in a yurt and then with some family. And then with my husband, we're going like tent camping. Mm. Um, not quite primitive, still have access to a bathroom. <laughs> Um, and then we're staring, we're staying at an airstream, like in an Ooh, airstream. I've always so, wanted to do that. Doing like a little glamping sandwich. So just a couple days of like, quote, almost primitive camping and then glamping. Oh, I love that. Uh, <laughs> That's so fun. Uh, yeah. How are you on this giggly evening? <laughs> I am very good. Uh, nothing. I don't think I have anything really new to report um, I've been spending a couple days with my family, which is lovely. And next week, I'm actually going out of the country, but I will tell you all about it next week for our next recording when I'm actually there. <laughs> so tease. a little tease. Uh, I know I'm a tease, um, <laughs> but it'll be more exciting when I can tell you that I'm recording from another country for the first time. <laughs> I like it. That is super exciting. That'll be our first episode recorded from somebody being international i know location right yeah so many milestones already <laughs> <laughs> i love that um what are we talking about today melissa well i can't believe this but it's time for another book club episode Woo! and this book um i'll let you give a little bit of context of how you found this book because this you deserve the credit for sourcing our second book club book. Um, but it is called The Search, Finding Meaning, Meaningful Work in a Post-Career World. And it is authored by a New York Times bestselling author, Bruce Feiler. Uh, he also wrote the bestseller, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, which already sounds like a book that we may need to add to our queue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it keeps growing and growing. Um, so before I dive a little bit more into the book and some of the topics that we're going to talk about in this episode, um, how did you find out about this book? So I found out about this book just being a podcast listener of another podcast, the Goop podcast. I know Gwyneth is kind of controversial, but I'm a fan and I really <laughs> like the conversations they have over there. And she had an interview with the author himself, Bruce, and I just thought the way he described concepts in the book his personality, the insights he was trying to get out for people reading the book just felt like something 
that you and I would be interested in and that people who are on this piloting journey with us might want to hear about. So that's how I found the search. I like it from a podcast to our podcast, full mm-hmm. circle. Um, yes. Yeah, so some of the topics uh, give a little summary of this book. Uh, I mean, I couldn't stop highlighting. I showed Renee a picture of like all of my little bookmarks on it, but ultimately it's about, it's in the title, finding meaningful work. Um, how do we, how are we like redefining or reimagining our own like relationships with work? He, I loved some of the way he, um, wrote this book because it's not just from his point of view and his perspective. He had shows that he did a lot of research by conducting interviews with folks from all kinds of industries of all kinds of backgrounds, very inclusive uh, lineup of individuals really paints the picture of like what America actually looks like. Um, Mm. So that was a really, that was really nice. And just, he does a really good job of simplifying some of the complexities and intricacies of work concepts and terminologies. So think of common terminal or common work terminology, like career, uh, the American dream, what does success mean? How is it defined? Um, a linear versus a nonlinear path, et cetera. Um, and then the stories of, of folks who have found meaningful work um, and then helping us to prepare to how we find our own version of meaningful work and what does that look like? Um, yeah, that's the, that's the gist. <laughs> Hopefully I captured it all. <laughs> I know there were so many great takeaways in this book. Like you, my pages are drenched in highlighter ink because I was just highlighting so much. And I really, really loved that he included, like you mentioned, interviews or excerpts from the stories of over 150 people who were really happy in their jobs and found their mm-hmm. work very meaningful. I think for me, whenever I'm doing anything, I just want to surround myself with people who are in that space. I think it's maybe just growing up, I did dance, I did swimming, I was in musical theater. I was just so used to being part of groups of people. You know, I didn't do a lot of solitary sports or activities so much. So I think hearing a lot of people talk about what they loved about their job or how they were able to navigate different changes in their careers to continue redefining and finding meaning in each new stage just felt like I was in great company. I I just, I love, I love being surrounded by that, that energy and that positivity. I find those stories really helpful. And I mean, we touched on this in the trailer where we talk about how much we appreciate and love success stories, like Mm -hmm. how I built this. Um, And I think he did a really good job in, in this, the stories or the excerpts of um, not painting this like perfect picture of, and this is what they've accomplished and all the bullet points and basically their resume of accomplishments. It was very much like I was in a dark place. Uh, I was grieving or I was here or I was unhappy and here are all my reasons. And then I just took this intentional step. I mean, it, the pivot, we keep talking about pivots and probably every episode, um, got to pivot to, to pilot, right. To, to pilot mm-hmm. your, what you're passionate about or what you find meaningful. Um, and we also talk a lot about this too off the pot as well. And just our own conversations about 
that weird messy middle. Now he doesn't define it as this messy middle. Um, but we've kind of coined that terminology between one another of like this sticky, weird space where things just don't feel quite right. Um, and I feel like he touches on this and he uses a different word to define it and to come to terms with what you're feeling. And, um, he, he, he uses the word work quake. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that too, but well, that I just love. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's just do it. <laughs> um, a work quake he defines, it's a word he made up. A work quake is a moment of disruption, inflection, or reevaluation that redirects our work in a meaningful way. And like you said, Melissa, it is that kind of sticky moment where you're considering a change or, maybe even just open to the possibility that you want something different. And that Mm -hmm. is something that we talk a lot about privately and on the pod. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) But can you think of any work quakes that you've had in your life? Yeah. Well, it's sort of like a school plus work quake mix. And that was – when I graduated college, I just didn't want to get a job. <laughs> I don't know how else to <laughs> explain it. Like it was weird. It was a weird sensation for me where I have worked toward this goal. Like all I wanted to do was get my bachelor's degree, graduate my four-year degree. And then um, I was like, okay, and then I'll just get a job. I mean, that's just like what you do. And then I had a few months more, a few more months rent at my place um, my college apartment. And I just stayed there for like a few months. You actually visited me. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, I don't know. It just like sparked something in me of like, you're not ready yet. Like it, it just shook me a bit. Um, so I would like to find that as like a version of a work quake. And I mean, work quakes, like he, he, there were so many different examples of, of folks who experienced different kinds of work quakes, but it's, it's sort of defined by, I mean, you, you sort of define it by your, your, you have your own definition mm-hmm. of what a work quake could, could feel like. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's like a gut feeling, I suppose, of like, whoa, something doesn't feel right. Or and or like a life event happens and causes you to be like, okay, so like a moment of burned, like burning out mm-hmm. or like a panic attack or a loss of a loved one or a loss of a pet, like a pandemic, these, a, a pandemic, <laughs> a lot of these. Uh, there could be collective work quakes, like the mm-hmm. pandemic, and there could just be like these life moments that just make you question everything of like, and it's sort of like it wakes you up a little bit, right? It's For like sure. Getting, being woken up by um, being on autopilot. Yeah. You're like, uh. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things I liked too is he talks about the fact that you are going to have multiple work quakes throughout your life. Um, On average, people have them every two years and 10 months, which is wild. Almost every three years, you're going to go through some sort of work quake. 
And it, like you mentioned, it doesn't have to directly relate to your career. Like I was trying to think when I was reading the book, what some of my work quakes have been. And I think one of my earlier work quakes long before I was a working adult happened when my family moved from Jamaica to the US when I was a teenager. Mm. Prior to that, I was someone who was really busy in doing things. Like I I mentioned, I was on the swim team. I did dance. I was just always running around playing and just, just doing a lot of things with my body or watching TV. I was not someone who wanted to read. And I came from a family of readers. My mom loves to read. My grandmother was a a huge reader. And I just wasn't interested in those sorts of things. But when I moved to the US, I, you know, like anybody, when you're in a new situation, it took me a while to make friends and find my footing. And my mom kind of said to me, you know, why don't you try reading a book instead of just sitting around, you know, because I hadn't really fallen into a new extracurricular yet or something. And that period is when I started falling in love with reading and storytelling. And my career now in public relations is very much rooted in storytelling. It's the kind of, that's the part of my job I enjoy the most. When I think of all these other career paths and things that I've enjoyed, whether it was on the stage or creative writing, like storytelling has always been a big part of that. And I wonder sometimes if I hadn't moved from Jamaica and had that sort of season of time alone to fall in love with books, like what my Mm. life would look like. Because it was really like that interest in reading and writing was really prompted by, I don't have my huge group of friends, so what am I going to do now? And so, yeah, just things like that kind of come in and shake up your life in unexpected ways and maybe introduce you to new things that weren't even on your radar that you could fall in love with. Yeah. And he, oh, that's so great that you share that that story because he talks about going back in the past and going back to how you've, how you've dreamed or perceived things as a child and what brought you meaning and what brought you happiness and joy when you were younger and I, th- um, I think it's like in the the first part of the book when he's when you're kind of like going like your audit. He calls it the 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 audit or the meaning mm-hmm. audit. Um, and the fact that you can just go back to that moment and you knew exactly how you felt and you realize now that that was pretty pivotal and reading books brought you joy. Um, and how that's like sort of impacted your perspective on work now or has inspired it. I I feel like I'm struggling with that. Like in this book, uh, there was one person who shared her story of like, my why is that I didn't even have a why. Like that was like the biggest eye-opening thing for me. And I think I'm at that inflection point right now in my life where um, things are okay. I'm thinking more work terms, okay? <laughs> Things are okay with work. Like I, I enjoy my job. I enjoy a majority of like, you know, the people I work with, I feel like I have a lot of autonomy and flexibility and, you know, there's a lot of benefits to where I work that make things feel at ease. I feel more at ease in my career than I have since the day I started. Mm. Um, 
and that in itself is nice, right? It, it, it's, it's calm within the chaos. But as I'm reading this book, I'm just like, wow, what am I actually really passionate about? What pulls at me at night? What just like drives me insane because I can't stop thinking about it? Like, what is that driver of passion that just fuels me? He mentions it feeling like, um, a toothache, mm-hmm. right? Like what just keeps gnawing at you that you just have to solve, that you just have to relieve this pain. And as of right now, like I would like to go back through this book and actually do the exercises of, of answering a lot of the questions that he titles the chapters in. Um, because I, I, yeah, I just need to dig and figure that out of like going back to my childhood and oh gosh, like unpacking a lot of stuff from that to surface. What was it and what is it today that just makes me happy? Mm-hmm. And is my current job doing that for me? Um, or is it, I don't know. Am I about to, am I on the cusp of a work quake? Ugh. I don't know. That's terrifying, by the way, to yeah. think that I'm on the cusp of a work quake. But it's also well, kind of exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, again, remember, chances are we're all going to go through a work quake every couple of years. So um, oh, for my, people who haven't, time. right? <laughs> for people who haven't read the book, um, the second half of the book, and this is part of what I found really helpful, is in the search for meaningful work. Uh, the author lays out a series of questions that he organizes by who, what, when, where, why, and how. And asking yourself these questions help you kind of arrive at the answers to what you're going to find meaningful um, in work at this period in time. Again, that's always subject to change. Like many people's stories in the book, they found meaningful work for a season, for a couple of years, for a couple of decades, and then decided they wanted something else. Like I remember there was one story about a man who had a really successful office job, and I can't remember what field he was in, but then one day his wife dragged him to see the movie An Inconvenient Truth, that documentary by Al Gore about climate change, and him going to see that movie kind of led him on a new path into sustainability and pivoting away from this glamorous office career he had before into this different field that was all about the environment. So yeah, I I think it's going back to what you said, Melissa, about your own kind of search. I feel like I'm always searching too. I think there's some things that I'm aware of. And then there's some things that I know I'm flirting with the edge of what Mm. that truth is, but I haven't fully unlocked it, Um, which, like you said, is exciting, but also terrifying. But I, yeah, I think, I think you'll get there. And I think it can also change. Like, there's so many people who it takes something happening to you to realize, oh, wow, it wasn't until I had my child that I realized I wanted to advocate for foster children, or it wasn't until I got into this accident. Sometimes it's even when quote unquote, negative things happen to you that you realize, Mm. I want to advocate for disability rights, or my passion is really in urban design and making sure we have more ramps. And, you know, so sometimes these Mm -hmm. things that really shape your life, like, 
haven't even happened yet. Right. And it's some, a lot of these stories, like it just, um, they reference pretty much like just finding their voice within it. Like all of a sudden something I'm now I'm, I'm blanking on the story, but when she became a doula where she studied, like she went to medical school, she got out of it and I forgot what she was doing, but then ended up having to be a part of a birth. And it just basically became like very natural for her. And it took someone pointing it out. So like, you know, you would actually make a wonderful doula. And mm-hmm. I I just feel like sometimes I just need that. I just need someone to recognize my potential sometimes because Aww. I'm like, eh, you know, not that I'm not confident where I, I can't see my own potential, but for some reason that assurance or that validation is helpful for me. I mean, that's okay to admit. <laughs> no. And honestly – one of the things I liked too, I think it was in the chapter on how, like, how do I then like activate this meaningful career once I've answered the who, what, when, where, why. He talks about seeking advice from people and how we all have mm. this sort of inner urge to hear from people, whether it's people smarter than us, people close to us, like we want that advice. And what I, one of the things I remember that I loved is that the two types of advice that people who find their work really meaningful and find joy in it, the advice they found the most useful when he categorized them into categories were number one, affirmation, and number two, go for it. You know, kind of Mm -hmm. like this encouragement to do it. Like a lot of, like the most useful advice for people who really love their work wasn't necessarily in, let me tell you what to do. Let me lay out the road for you. It's It's the advice that recognizes you already know what it is inside you, but you just want someone to Mm. give you permission or to give you encouragement and just hype you up to say, it's okay. Like that is actually a good idea. Awesome. And yeah, I I like that. And I, I don't know, I think we might've talked about this a little bit in the feedback episode, but I do think, you know, sometimes you do just want like a little bit of affirmation. It's like, you don't have to tell me what to do. I think I kind of know what I want to do already. (laughs) Um, I just want you to tell me it's okay. And it's not completely crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That's, um, he mentioned something about, and now I'm like struggling to find the quote here, but uh, about how you don't discover the answers. You were, you, you reveal them. Mm, Is that ringing a bell to you? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, yeah, I think it aligns with the, uh, the advice thing where you reveal it, like it's, it's there, like it's, it's already within you and you just sort of like an archeologist kind of brush the sand off and then there it is <laughs> versus like searching for an answer. Like you don't have to search for it. It's actually there. You just have to dust, dust it off a bit. Yeah, I I really do think for anyone who is grappling with this question of, you know, finding meaningful work, that this is a really great book. I highly recommend it because the questions he poses for you to ask yourself are super revealing. Like one of the questions I'll just bring up was asking yourself what your favorite stories were like when you watch a movie or someone Mm. tells you a story, like what are some of those favorite stories? And he categorizes them like the most common ones for people who love their jobs into four categories, like 
wisdom stories, heroic stories, life stories, and suspense. And how even something as simple as, oh, this is my favorite movie, or these are the the genre books I gravitate towards, or the kind of TV shows I like, could help reveal like a bigger truth about the work you're meant to be doing in this world. And I would never think to connect the dots between well, if, if I watch Succession, that must mean something. <laughs> <laughs> but he really does guide you through how like all of these choices and decisions mm-hmm. you make in small ways in other parts of your life can reveal bigger things um, when you're grappling with these big questions. He mentions Succession in the book that his wife, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that his wife tends to follow that sort of like high intensity, high achieving type of stuff. Um, I know you're watching Succession. I'm also watching <laughs> Succession. Um, and see that I I really want to dig into that on my own, like, you know, just to understand like my own sort of wants and needs and what I gravitate towards because I'm someone I mean, I'm a little all over the place. I mean, I feel like I'm sure a lot of us can relate to that of, you know, just because you like Succession doesn't mean you may uh, find yourself more in tune with the likes of corporate America. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can like succession and also watch love is blind, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which both of us do that. Love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think just paying more attention to what I'm consuming as well, you know, what you were mentioning and not just what I consume, but like what sort of, he mentions this kind of gives you those butterflies. Yeah. Um, and paying more attention to those moments because they can reveal things about yourself that you probably already know, but you just haven't actively sort of flipped the switch and turned it on to recognize it as a driver for the type of work and the type of person that you want to become. And I haven't done that enough. Um, I'm someone who, uh, Apparently on my Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram six question mark. Um, and I don't know much about it, but I'm learning. I'm, 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 I'm testing it if I, if I like this type of, uh, test, not to box me in, but just sort of like guide some thinking. And as an Enneagram six, you are driven by a lot of security, loyalty and fear. Mm. And. I at first I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like, I'm like a go-getter. Like, no, like I'm, you a, are. I'm a badass. But then when I think about some of the decisions I've made in my career and in life, um, there is the element of security that I'm I'm always seeking and I'm always looking for. And sure, I can I I think things can be both a strength and a weakness. I think every strength has a weakness. Um so you know, how do I, I don't know, have I not listened to something because this fear of like, or this anxiety or anxiousness around, but is it secure enough for you? Mm -hmm. Has that stopped me from doing something I feel like is more passionate, but risky? So yeah, I loved this book because it's just, those were a lot of those like, thoughts and feelings and emotions just like surfaced for me. Um, So yeah, maybe other Enneagram sixes or just human beings can relate (laughs) to that. And yeah, it's hard, right? Because like you want, you want 
for me, I can't speak for the collective we, but like there's, there's a, an amount of like financial security and just emotional security that I'm always seeking. And again, he talks about this in the book where a lot of that narrative around how we work and what we look for is so deeply rooted as we were with children, like as we were as children. So what we're taught as children to think about what success is and what work is influences what we end up thinking work is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And yeah, not that like my, I think my parents did a wonderful job of teaching me about working hard and working smart and having my head on strong. But I think too, they are, both of them are people who don't want too much risk because it's, I don't know. They just, they just want us to be okay. And they were probably thought in order to be okay, by okay, it means money. It means X, Y, and Z. Yeah. A um, couple of things. Now this is turning into like a therapy session. No, we can we can make it that. Um, number one, I we will put an Enneagram resource in the show notes because I'm a big fan of the Enneagram. I'm a number seven. Um, so we'll put it there if anyone is curious about what these random numbers mean and want to investigate it on your own. I, I also really relate to what you talk about with fear. I think that's a big thing for me too, like fear of acting. And I like that he addresses it in the book too, that sometimes you do just have to get to that inflection point where the fear of doing something becomes less than the fear of not doing it. I think I am, Mm. I am in that inflection zone. I don't know. I don't know where the specific point is if I've hit the point, but I'm definitely in that zone because I'm someone who I get very preoccupied with time, I think just getting older, maybe being a woman, like there's, so, you know, we're constantly like being fed different timelines of you should have this figured out by this age, you should have hit this milestone by that age. And I, I try not to internalize too much of that. And I'm, I'm pretty good at parts of it. But then there are other moments when I do find myself fixating on, oh, well, if I wanted to live in another country, I should have done that in my twenties. Like you can't do that in your thirties. You're like a big adult now, mm-hmm. you know, or, or other little things that like these scripts in my head that I have to like unwind and kind of rewrite and say, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to believe that script. And you're right. A lot of it is stuff that you pick up in childhood. I think my, my background is similar and dissimilar to yours. I am mm-hmm. the, daughter of immigrants um, as well. And I think there is just a different, a different focus on security when Mm -hmm. it comes to being in a new country where your immediate social network and family network is smaller, you know, like those people are all in a different country. Um, My personal life, like I'm the eldest of two um, children and my younger sister has Down syndrome. So I think a lot when I think about career choices and things like money is not just a a pie in the sky idea for me. It's something I think about very tangibly in the sense that, ooh, if I want to be the kind of older daughter who can like take care mm-hmm. of my parents if they need me or my sister, like I, I can't be one of those people who just says, I moved to New York with $10 in my pocket and I <laughs> lived on the-. I'm like, that is great for you. 
<laughs> but I don't think I have the luxury or the privilege to be running around with $10 in my pocket. So sometimes that means like making choices that aren't always exactly what I want to do, but mm-hmm. it's not fulfilling that need, but it is fulfilling a different need in me to feel like you said, secure or feel responsible or like I'm not letting other people down by being selfish or too selfish. I I think a healthy amount of selfishness is good, but Mm -hmm. I, I do feel sometimes those external pressures of, okay, well, can I just jump and do nothing? Like I do want that safety net. Um, and I just grew up seeing people work really hard and kind of do the the expected thing. But I don't know. Sometimes the people who are the happiest do the expected thing. But sometimes you take a risk and then several years down the road, like I, I think about like some of my cousins and other people in my family who are really secure in their careers and really happy. And I forget that 10 years ago, it was a big risk. It just doesn't look like a risk anymore because now they've, you know, like you can. Oh, true. Risks don't have to feel like you're on the edge of a cliff the whole time. Like that's the beginning of the transition, maybe, but it can Mm -hmm. lead to you feeling more secure. But you do just have to weigh your appetite for risk against your dreams and sometimes like like practical things, like sometimes practical life things, like you said, like financial security is is important. Like you. Yeah. And, you know, the, this reminds me, and I'm going to see if I can find the the page in this book. Maybe you'll find it quicker than me. But, um, I mean, the way that you're weighing sort of like, here's what I know I want, but here's also what I need and what I know my role in my family to be. I know, um, immigrant families in general, like we, we take our roles in our family seriously, knowing, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'll speak for myself. Like I know for a fact, my parents don't, my mom specifically has said, I, you will never put me in an assisted living home ever. <laughs> and it's common. It's common. Yeah. Um, for a lot of cultures to have multi-generational homes. And so I just, I, I've known this from very young, who had my grandparents also taking care of me and, and my siblings, that that's just what you do. You know, yeah. your parents at a certain point, um, your parents don't take care of you anymore and you take care of them. Like, um, I don't know, you know, that's how it is in my family and Filipino culture, um, even modern day, like, you know, Filipino culture like that, that's the thing. Um I think also my mom did work in an assisted living facility. So she's just like extra cautious around it. Yeah, fair. But I mean, these, these thoughts that we have, like, is part of why we choose what we choose and helps us define what that, what that meaningful job looks like. And he has this, um, the section around the ABCs of meaning, a agency, B, belonging, and C, cause. Um, and goes into a little bit more detail on like agency – help me out here <laughs> if I'm missing <laughs> – if I'm misspeaking or missing something. But agency is around just the autonomy and the flexibility of, of doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
belonging has to do more with like the people and relationships and the human experience, I suppose, and, and that being a driver. So I sort of see a link to our family and the roles that we play kind of belonging, yeah. <laughs> no pun intended, in that section. <laughs> and then cause is around something that you're just inspired to rally behind, right? Like um, you went through a work quake and now you're an advocate, as you mentioned, for um, accessibility, let's say accessibility on websites in particular. And so now that is your cause to make every single website accessible because knowledge should be shared, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that everyone, the ABC, some people that order changes for some people. And for one person, it's ABC agency being my number one, or it could be BAC belonging human interaction is my number one um, with the, autonomy and agency second. And I don't know what my order is. I don't know if you know what your order is. <laughs> I'm still kind of thinking about it. I feel like B is in the front though for me though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think it. I think like everything, it changes over your life. I would say to this point in my life, it has been a ABC. Mm. Or maybe actually probably a, I think bef- to this point, I think it's been ACB, um, agency first, then focused on the cause and then like belonging at the end. I mm. think I, as I'm doing these exercises with myself, I think cause continues to be a big part of it. I think belonging is moving up and I think agency I don't think it's completely dropped from the number one spot yet, but I think it is trending downwards. Like I think Interesting. Yeah, I think some of the and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I think some of the ego attached to agency, like I think like ego and pride are probably some of my biggest like vices. If you think of like the deadly, the seven deadly sins kind of thing, those are, I'm a Leo, Mm. like those are some of mine. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, I I just, when I think about work, I I find myself constantly talking about, but how is this giving back to people and how, how are we helping? Like just being really cause and more service driven in a way that just wasn't as much Mm -hmm. of a priority to me before I was very much me, 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 what accolades can I rack up? Like what, like what legacy am I writing for myself? Not for people who are going to receive the work, but like, Mm -hmm. am I going to be on this list? Am I going to have this colorful resume? Um, And it's actually interesting that I, his discussion of the resume is really interesting Um, the history of the resume in the culture of work. Um, He said at one point in the book, the resume normalized or even fetishized the linear career. Mm. You were expected to move in an uninterrupted progressive line from school to school, job to job, adolescence to retirement in one straight line. And the resume was a big part of that because you were spelling things out in this linear chronological way versus the way we all live our lives, which is way more twists and turns. Like there are periods where you're surging forward and then there are times where you have to take a step back or times where to do the bigger thing might mean 
taking a back seat in your resume. Like when I think about my orders, my ABCs, I think some of the cause stuff that I'm most excited about that's becoming more important to me is less glamorous and doesn't always have the same like sparkly name on the resume, mm. but it's the stuff that really, that really fills my cup up more. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I think I, I'm considering that type of stuff too, right? Right now as well. I think, yeah, probably earlier in my career, I, I could see agency being the first letter. I think I'm moving. I would love for cause to move up more. Um, and that's, I think for me just to, to understand the, the things that give me butterflies that uh, trigger me in like the best in, in, in like a positive way. And um, like, yeah, what do I stand for and what do, and how can I use my time and my resources and my skills to support that and to share that. I think I'm on that journey. I think there are definitely things I know already that spark joy in my life. Um, and it's just a matter of figuring out and, and keep digging and figuring out like what that, what that is. Mm -hmm. So I think my goal and maybe I'm on the, on the way there is more like a, like a BCA and or a CBA. We'll ah. see. Yeah. Yeah. C CBA over overturns an MBA now, I guess. <laughs> well, listen, everyone's all about meaning. Um, I did a little extra credit <laughs> for this conversation and I was reading an article that was published, um, I think a week or two ago. It's pretty recent and it was called anti meaningless work, how Gen Z are redefining traditional career paths. And it just felt like it lined oh. up a lot with what we were reading in this book. And the article, which of course will be in the show notes, um, said moving away from traditional career paths to encourage nonlinear development makes sense for all parties in 2023. And that there's a common misconception that Gen Zers are anti-work, but in re reality, they're just anti-meaningless work. Mm. And I think, I think people like to talk about how Gen Z are shaking up the workplace, which I think is true. But I don't think that is exclusive to Gen Z. I think a lot of millennials um, and Gen X yeah. and older people give us are, some credit, Renee. <laughs> I know, like we're also like we also like give a damn about stuff too. <laughs> like, and I think we are feeling more of this pull to what's the meaning? How am I giving back? And again, giving back doesn't have to mean like charity, nonprofit. Like you can give back by saying. I love working in advertising because mm -hmm. I entertain or help to promote, like, I don't know. I think sometimes meaning and give back, people think that it's all about philanthropy, which it can be, but I think you can give back by being a plastic surgeon. You can help someone feel more Absolutely. comfortable in their body. And like, that's also meaningful. It, um, and I do think that I hear more people talk about that. It's definitely something that I think about more. Like I'm not just going, Oh, what's, what's this shiny name? What's this cool, glamorous company or opportunity? Like I, I get really excited about like, what's the purpose here? Are we helping people? Are we helping the planet or are customers yeah. feeling excited? Like that's, that, that's what gets me excited to wake up every day and, and give, give of my resources and my time. <laughs> It's um, it's alignment on values, like mm -hmm. you know, I, Gen Z or millennials or um, 
Gen X, like whoever helped sort of thrust this like into, you know, into front of our faces a lot more. I mean, a lot of brands know this. And if you're smart, if you are a smart brand, it is important for you to show up with your values right there present because us consumers, like we find that we, we need um, that sort of connection to our brands because we recognize the power of the dollar and mm-hmm. what our dollar can mean for certain things. And, you know, whether it was like a company like Tom's that maybe started this wave of, you know, buy a pair, give a pair, uh, Warby Parker, right? Buy a pair of glasses, then give a pair of glasses or 10% of our profits go to this cause. Like it's almost, it's almost more rare. I don't know about more rare, but it's very common to see brands nowadays infuse that in their actual bottom line. And they see it in their business plan and they see it, they get, they see that ROI in their bottom line when they are headstrong and, and show up with their, their heart on their sleeves in terms of their values and what they support and what they believe. Um, and us millennials majority and, and Gen Z, like that's almost a requirement now a day absolutely of, of like uh are you actually living your values and we put brands we we pressure brands to do that and it makes me think of like uh am i putting this kind of pressure on myself too like what are my values and starting to define those um yeah so you know i'm i'm really i see and i i, I haven't read the article yet so i'm excited to read it but just the fact that, yeah, they aren't anti-work. They're anti-meaningless work. I totally resonate with that. Um, and even like Bruce and how he defines work. Like work is not necessarily – work can be defined by multiple things. And he mm-hmm. has the different types of work um, and how each of us can have multiple types of work. And those are um, – let's see here, multiple types of jobs. And that is your main job, side job, a care job, a hope job, and a ghost job. Mm-hmm. I liked that section on those jobs a lot. I've never thought about work in that way um, or jobs in that way. And main job is like your – I'm just going to say quote, quote, big quotes, nine to five, the, the job that you're, I guess, getting paid to do and you might be on benefits or something like that. Like you're, yeah. just, you're, you're, you're main, the big kahuna. Um, and then side job. See, okay. I, I do have a question for you. I was kind of getting confused between side job and hope job. So we can define this together. <laughs> Yeah, I think um I think yeah, your main job is what you think of when you think of a job. Like I go here, I punch the clock in, they're paying me money. I think your side job is more of like a side hustle. Like I think a side job is primarily driven by finance was my understanding. So okay. if I like it's like, lucrative. 
Yeah, I think it's about like making more money is the goal of the side job. Whereas the hope job is the thing that you do on the side that you hope will grow into a bigger thing. Um, So if I make blueberry jam and sell it at the farmer's market on the side, that could be a hope job because I want to maybe one day run a blueberry jam business. If I Mm. just babysit on the weekends and I don't plan to start this huge childcare thing, then that's just a side job. Like that's just purely to like get the dollars in my wallet. Whereas the hope job is something that you feel is going to, or you want it to grow into something bigger and it can Mm. currently make money or it can currently not make money. Okay. I'm glad you defined that for me. That makes total sense. So I suppose this podcast is a hope job. It is for me. Yeah. Yeah. I would define that as this as that. Where yeah, the it's 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 doing something to me. It's probably doing the same thing to you where it's creating some butterflies and on the cusp of un, us it helps it it by us having these conversations every week, I feel like I'm just getting like closer and closer to and and digging to understand like what something's gnawing at me and I just mm-hmm. haven't quite figured out what it is yet. Like it's just like this is a horrible analogy, but it's I like love an this- analogy, so I bet it's going to be great. No, no, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people maybe listening are going to like this, like this imagery, but it's fine. Um, it's like finding a spider in your room and you know that it's there. <laughs> I know. I told you you weren't going to like it, what? but it, you know that it's there and you're just like, I need to find it. But in this case, I'm not, I'm not trying to kill it. I'm trying to set it free. I'm trying to set whatever is gnawing at me free. And I don't know what it is yet. I don't know where it is. It's okay. there. I got it. I like it. Yeah, not the best. I told you not a lot of people are going to love that spider visual. but <laughs> I love an analogy. So I, I love any kind of experimentation with analogy. We'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and then the care job. So that is when – this is also considered a job where you're having to take care of other people. Mm-hmm. Of a pet, of maybe an aging parent or children, um, you know. I actually have to interject about the aging parent thing. I think oh, in, last, in last week's episode, I talked about like my parents aging. My family oh. was like, we are not 95. Like, what? <laughs> what lies are you spreading about us online? I was like, no, I'm like not pretending. That you like, we're all we're aging. All aging. Yeah. We're all older, but for the record, they're not wrinkly dinkly older people. L- <laughs> they're older, L- but L- had to like correct that for the rest. <laughs> well, my mom's going to be like, "Why did you just spill the tea about me not being in a retirement home?" <laughs> I'm like, don't worry, mom. I'm gonna I'm gonna set you up real nice. Don't you worry. We're don't on the don't worry. We're on the path of like getting you a little casita in the back with the pool. <laughs> like, don't you worry. Wait, your mom's setup sounds amazing. I want a casita in the back. I know. I just realized I didn't need little in front of casita, but it's fine because it means little house already. Little little house. Oh, anyway, cute. but yeah, care job is. It, I mean, it it takes up your day, right? It takes up mind space. It takes up yeah. Uh, head space, heart space, all the spaces for you to be 
emotionally, physically, mentally available for that. Um, And then there's ghost job. Which is the most common job that none of us have thought about, but most people have a ghost job, which is crazy. And what's a ghost job? Um, Okay, I can take it. A ghost job is something that you are battling with or dealing with that takes up time and energy and mental and emotional space that gets in the way of your other jobs. I don't have the statistic in front of me, but I believe he said it can take up up to like 12 or so hours every week. Don't quote me on that number, but it's Mm. several hours a week people spend dedicated to this unpaid ghost job. And a ghost job could be dealing with prejudice or discrimination. So even though you're doing your regular job and you're dealing with other things, if you are in a hostile environment, that's a ghost job. It can also be put on by yourself, you know, like if you're dealing with anxiety. So it's not always someone exerting pressure on you in a ghost job. It could be like my own anxieties and self-confidence issues that I'm having to navigate and figure out. That's eating up hours of my time. And it's the most common job type, but it's the only, I think it's one of the only jobs that does not have any potential to earn money. And it does not have any potential to really bring fulfillment because you can find fulfillment in care. You can find fulfillment Mm -hmm. in all of these other job types, but the ghost job is just taking up time and space and it's not really giving you anything back. And I thought that was just, that was mind blowing. Yeah. And that's terminology I've never heard before, right? I've never thought of it like that, that anything that's taking up like space or time in your day, like is considered like a job. Yeah. Right. And work is not just the main job. Like, you know, work can also be, I think he shares this in the book, like we work on other parts of our lives and not just work. We work on ourselves. We work on our bodies. We work on our minds. And so why not be more intentional and have a more meaningful, meaningful job, finding more meaningful work. Um, because I mean, like we say it all the time, like we want a life well lived, right? Yeah. So why waste, why waste our time? I agree. And and not fulfilling. I know that we have to start rounding this out. Um, but I, again, I think I just want to end on like, I highly recommend this book in addition to giving you a series of questions and, and like concrete tools that you can use to help figure out what that looks like for you if you don't already know what meaningful work looks like in your life. It also just gives you a lot of education and information in reframing how you look at work. I think this older model of maybe compartmentalizing this is work and this is the rest of my life is something that we're probably going to start throwing out if we haven't thrown it out already, which is why people are now integrating meaning more into their work. And so if you have a hard time doing that, or if that just doesn't come naturally to you, I think this book has a lot of, again, education and tools to figure that out. Um The last thing I will share, and then I'll hand it over to you, Melissa. He has this quote about work and kind of constructing that narrative of work in your life that I really like. He says, we forget that we're actually telling a story about who we are through our decisions about what we do. Hmm. And I really like that. Again, even if you're someone who doesn't, you know, think work is a major part of your life or that your life is very career defined, 
it is important to remember that what I do is a part of who I am and the best chance at being happy in that and finding meaning in it and joy and fulfillment is if I stop trying to pretend that there are two separate things, what I do for work and how I live the rest of my life. Yeah, that was like powerful. And, and the only thing I'll add to that, cause I, I love, love that you shared that, um, from the book is the stories, the, the journey, all of that, this idea of the American dream, what success is like, it's, it's not a one size fits all. And it's very much up to us to own that narrative. And you shared about the the story, like it's us, it's up to us to write that story. And so the call to action of the book is essentially to start writing your own narrative and writing your work story. And there's even like a, um, a template in the back of the book to help with that. I have not done that exercise yet. I feel like I just need to be in this like quiet or a calm space of my own to just like really be with myself and, and dig and sort of go through this. Uh, I don't know, just go through, go through it, go through it, grow through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was just a very inspiring book, 10 out of 10. Um, definitely a book that I am very happy to lend out to others. If you all want, a, want, want my copy and want to see everything that I've underlined, um, and yeah, I, if you're, I guess we're kind of all in this headspace and heart space. If a, we're, we're hosting this podcast and if, if you're listening to it, um, we might all be in a common space to see what's, see what's next. Yeah. And figure it out together. I, I definitely don't have it all figured out or I don't necessarily even know what my next steps are going to be if they're coming tomorrow, if they're coming 10 years from now, but I think resources like this sometimes help make it feel a little less daunting to to even ask those questions. <sighs> Great recommendation, Renee. Thank you, Gwyneth. <laughs> thank you, Goop. <laughs> thank you, Gwyneth. And thank you, Bruce. For this... Most importantly, thank you, Bruce. Most important. <laughs> author. Author. Um, yeah, it's just amazing with the inclusivity and everything with it. Um. Well, if there's no other remaining thoughts on the book, do you want to share your gold star this week? Yes. So I haven't personally tested this gold star out yet, but I heard about it um, on another podcast. Again, that's where I got all my information. (laughs) But it just sounded like (laughs) such a beautiful company project that I wanted to share it with other people in case they could dive into it before I did. It's called Peoplehood. And it's a first-of-its-kind practice designed to improve our relationships, starting with ourselves. And so my understanding of peoplehood is that it is a community that you join that hosts 60-minute guided group conversations called gathers. And it you can go into this on your own or you can go as a couple. It encourages people to speak freely and listen deeply. There's music and breath work. It operates... Mm. In person, you can do in-person gathers in New York City, but they also have a virtual program for people who don't live in New York and are still craving that connection. My understanding of it is that it kind of grew out of this kind of loneliness epidemic that we're living Mm -hmm. in, um, where people just aren't feeling as connected to each other. And 
when they are connecting, sometimes it might feel a little shallow or it's not fully giving you everything you need. It's come out of the founders of SoulCycle as well. So they have a history in launching successful companies. And so, like I said, I haven't taken part in peoplehood yet. They do have some trial classes online. I'm trying to decide if I want to do my first one virtually or if I want to wait mm-hmm. a couple of weeks until I'm back in New York City and do it in person. But I just love any um, anything that's trying to connect people and make them feel part of a community and, and grow their network. And I know that's something a lot of other people are looking at. So I didn't want to gatekeep. I figured I'd share it now, <laughs> even though I haven't done it yet, just in case it this information can arrive at the right time for you. And, and it's something that might be helpful. Peoplehood. We're we're a lot of things, Renee, but we are not gatekeepers. No, we don't. What is it? Gatekeep, girl boss, and what? There's another one. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. (laughs) Sorry. Are they just like terms like we just don't do anymore? Like, yeah, we're anti. (laughs) I don't know because I'm like okay with girl bossing. Maybe whatever. Um, (laughs) It doesn't bother me as much. Yeah, I get Um, it. I get it. Sorry. We digress. <laughs> Ignore whatever I was trying to do there. <laughs> I, there. There's something there with the G's. I love alliteration. Yeah, there's a there's so. a third one with a G. It's like girl boss gatekeep, and I don't know. You don't have to do this live. If I figure it out, I'll <laughs> grind, grind. Like I don't know. Anyway, yeah, like grinding, like hustling. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know why I opened my mouth. <laughs> no. I- People, peoplehood though, peoplehood. Yeah. Focus on that. <laughs> peoplehood. <laughs> Try it out. Um, and well, now I'm jealous because the in-person stuff is in New York. Um, okay, this is not my this is not my gold star, but I'll, I'll share it and then I'll, I'll transition to my gold star. But I have also been so tempted to participate in these like group trips. I know you and I are a fan of group trips. We did like two EF tours together, college birth, <laughs> baby, uh, baby. <laughs> A plug. We went to Costa Rica and Thailand. But there's like other – I've seen it with some influencers who are, are working with companies to like just create these like group travel situations. And I'm like, oh, man, like that sounds amazing. Like we've met some of the best people and had some of the best experiences and then strengthened our relationship with each other through these trips. So I got to look into that. Yeah. Um, okay, but my actual, my actual gold, gold star this week is – getaway house and if you don't know what getaway house is um they are tiny cabin rentals and they're like all over there there's a lot in the nation in the u.s um there is one in north carolina it's in ashboro which isn't anything special no offense but damn but (laughs) no like ashboro the city sorry um it does have our zoo but uh these tiny cabins there's like about like 20 25 of them and if you you probably have seen their ads on instagram and they have this like huge window they're literally like they look like they're a rectangle dark wood um on the outside they always have a picnic table and adirondack chairs a campfire and literally it's like a tiny home like there's a, a kitchen there's working water there's air conditioning definition of glamping there's a shower with hot water as well um but yeah my my little family and i by my little family my husband and my dog it's pet friendly by the way (laughs) um 
which is like a non-negotiable for me for some of these trips. Uh, yeah, we spent like a couple days, like a day and a half there. We did an early check-in, late check-out. And it was just so – it was it, taking a deep breath is essentially what it felt like. Mm. Um, and it was just nice to – we ended up cooking outside because, we, you know, we wanted to take advantage of being outside. So we took our, our stove outside, our camp stove, and – yeah, just caught up with each other. I read this book there. I read the search there. Um, and I recommend it. Highly recommend. And I kind of want to go to other getaways in other cities and see like, yeah, like the, the one in Ashboro. Like there were some good trails around the zoo, but I think some of the other getaway locations have even like better trails because you're, you know, like in – um, I don't know, mountains and just prettier places than Ashboro. Sorry. Oh, I like, I really want to do a getaway. I know so many people who've done it and just, it looks beautiful. It seems really restorative and restful. Mm-hmm. I really want to do it. I think that's a good one. Um, what are you manifesting? Should wow. I go first to switch no, it up? No, no. <laughs> We are ending Renee's on your like, manifestations because they're like great. Never, <laughs> never. <laughs> um, no, but you have just good ones, so I just want to leave people on that note. Um, <laughs> my manifestation this week is a quote from a writer I like, Anais Nin. Um, it's from one of her diaries. And the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. So I am manifesting having the courage um, and the risk to allow myself to blossom um, and not remain in a tight bud. And I, I wish that for everyone as well. Well, we're just going to end on that because that was great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Famous last words. Let's hear what she says now. <laughs> Ours are actually similar. Um, you're talking about blossoming. Um, this one talks about potential, which mm. I think are very similar. And uh, I didn't Google hard enough to figure out who said this. <laughs> so if I find out the actual source, hashtag show notes. Um, this is also a quote. And that is, do not cap your potential at what others have said is possible. And this is a reminder for me. This is actually a note that I have on my phone. Like I have one of those like note widgets. So I can, I always see it. Um, And it's just like a reminder to me that I'm the captain of my own ship. And sometimes you just got to say, F you if you think that's like what my potential is and and what my journey is. And I'm actually ultimately the one to decide that and ultimately the one to decide what my potential is and to unlock it and to live it. Uh, So got to work on that. Got to work on that that confidence boost, girl. (laughs) Talking to myself. Oh, I I love the book of our manifestations felt so empowering. It was about like everything you need is already in you and you Mm -hmm. have the potential and you can take the risk. I love that. It's the first episode of the summer. Yes. Maybe the second episode of the summer, technically. Yeah, June 21st. I guess technically the second episode. Yeah. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I think that's really good energy to take this summer. Summer's doing some things to me this year, and I love it. I love that for you. I, my <laughs> biggest goal is to evangelize that everyone loves summer and that we just live in a summer state of mind all year round. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that was a good note to end on. Happy summer, everyone. <laughs> Happy summer, everyone. And thanks for joining us. All right. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.